Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our discipleship pastor, Adam Scott. Hey, he is the way maker and he is working. You guys can have a seat. He is working in our church. He is working in our community. He is working in our world. And we are celebrating the fact that his presence, his fingerprint is on everything that we are doing. Listen, we're going to be talking about that throughout the next six weeks. We're launching a brand new series this week, and it's called Living in the Light. This is going to be a powerful series that I think is going to revolutionize our church because it's going to lead us in an outward direction to the people in this community and this world that need to experience the love of Jesus Christ. I want to read a verse to you, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, it says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of the light. Listen, that verse is leading us through this series. It's, it's what's calling us in this direction. And we're going to be doing some things throughout the next six weeks that are going to lead us to live in light and share that light with the world around us. Let me give you a few examples of some of the things that we're going to be doing. We're, we're going to be recognizing our teachers and our first responders. That starts next week. And we're going to, we're going to bring them up in front of you. We're going to pray over them, and we're going to let them know that we appreciate their service to this community. We're also... We're going to be providing support to students through backpacks and uniforms. You already heard about that today. Man, last week, we didn't expect 100 backpacks to be gone. We thought we would have enough for two weeks. We didn't because you guys were so eager to share the love of Jesus to these middle and high school students that were trying to support um, that you took every single one of them, and they're going to be coming back in this week and next week. Throughout this series, we're going to be blessing the small businesses in this community by spotlighting, promoting, and investing in them. We're also going to be stocking the food pantry at Chard Ray so that we can minister to people through that organization. And most importantly, get this, most importantly, we are going to challenge you not to do this as a corporate strategy, but for you as an individual to go out into the world and to look for ways that you can show kindness to the people around you. You see, we're going to be promoting something called the Thousand Acts of Kindness. And we're going to be talking about this all series. We're going to be telling you that our job, our goal, our prayer is that we would be able to track and achieve a thousand acts of kindness. And if you look right here behind me, that's what these walls are for. They're going to represent every time we hit a milestone of 200, 400, 600, 800, and a thousand. And we are going to celebrate the fact that God is moving in this world because of what we're doing right here at Northridge. Does that excite anybody? Man, that excites me. I'm jittery this morning because I'm starting off this series. I'm excited about it, and I think God is going to move in an incredibly powerful way. Let's kick off the series with this. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 18. You can go ahead and open your Bibles there. We'll start reading through it in just a minute. But we're going to kick off the series by focusing on the light that transforms us the light that transforms us. You see, there's a temptation for us as we start a series like this to jump right into the application, to talk about the action steps, to talk about the go and do's. But if we do that, we suggest that we are producers of the light. And the truth is, you and I, we don't produce anything. Instead, we reflect the light that comes from God. We have to receive something before we can give it away. 
You know, a great example of this is the moon. People throughout the history of the world have studied the moon. They've seen the glory of the moon and they've tried to figure out what causes it to shine like this in the sky. And throughout all of human history, there's been a lot of different ideas as to what could be causing this. Some believed that uh, the, the moon was a bowl of fire. Others thought it was a reflection of our own land and seas. Some even believed that it was God himself in the sky watching out for us. But it was the ancient Greek philosophers that were the first to accurately recognize and suggest that the moon's light was just simply a reflection of the sun's light. You see, we know a lot more right now, and we know that the surface of the moon is actually dark. It's not light at all, but it has reflection qualities that are similar to worn asphalt that reflect the light into your eyes. And even though the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, and it only reflects 3 to 12% of the sun's light, it still creates a phenomenon that people throughout the history of the world have studied, recognized, and tried to learn from. Listen, our proximity to those around us perfectly positions us to accomplish phenomenal things. But don't miss this. It's our proximity to Jesus that determines what we have to offer. Here's my sermon in a sentence. We receive God's light so that we can reflect God's light. That's the goal. We receive something from Jesus. We receive something from God so that we can in turn reflect that to the world around us. Today's text, Matthew chapter 18, it's gonna demonstrate that in an incredibly powerful way. So let's kick things off. Matthew chapter 18, we're gonna read verses 21 and 22 together. It says this, it says, then Peter, and Peter's one of Jesus' closest followers, then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. In some of your Bibles, there's probably a little note at the bottom that says that Jesus may have also said 70 times seven times. Um, we don't really know exactly which one it was, but either one of those are a possibility. But Peter starts off asking a really good question. He says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody that sins against me? You see, I wanna make this personal. I went for a run in my neighborhood the other day. And as I was running, I stopped. I don't run very fast, so it wasn't hard for me to pick things up on my way. And I picked up five screws in my neighborhood. That's five screws that were waiting to go into my tire. That's five screws more than the screws that I and my neighbors have already paid to remove from our tires. See, I was frustrated. I don't know if I'm mad at the builders that are working in my neighborhood or if one of the tire places has started their own COVID relief bill and they're just tossing these things out in the neighborhoods so that we'll drum up some business. But either way, I was pretty frustrated. And after I think about it, this is what Peter is feeling. And he says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody like that? Jesus, they, they keep putting holes in my tire. What am I supposed to do with that? See, Jewish teachers at that time, they typically taught that forgiving somebody three times was enough. That was all you had to do, three times. Why three? Because anything more than three would indicate that the person wasn't actually trying to change their behavior, and therefore they didn't deserve to be forgiven. 
You see, we give Peter a bad rap for this, and we say, Peter, you're being so immature in your conversation with Jesus, but really he's more than doubling what was typically taught and expected. And he's saying, Jesus, is this enough? But what Jesus does here is he responds with an extraordinary new challenge. You see, whether he answers 77 times or 70 times seven, doesn't really matter because the number is not the point. It's the exaggeration that's supposed to make the point. You see, the point is we as believers, we as Christ followers, we should take forgiveness to the extreme. We should go farther than other people will go. We should withstand more than other people can withstand. We should stop keeping count and stop tracking because we are willing and able to show extreme kindness to the people in the world around us. Where does that extreme kindness come from? It doesn't come from within ourselves. You see, Jesus leads in from this point into a whole story that he makes up to explain the fact that this extreme kindness doesn't come from in us. It's a reflection of the kindness that God has shown to us. I want to read this story to you. And remember, this is a story that Jesus makes up to illustrate a point. And it's a lengthy story, but I'm going to read it in its entirety because I think reading it in its entirety highlights some of the characteristics of the story that are going to challenge us and transform us to go out in this world through this series and beyond and change the world and let them know that we are for them. So let's read the story that Jesus shares starting in verse 23. We're going to read all the way through 35. It says, Therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, or another way of saying this was 10,000 talents, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant, he fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Another way of saying that was a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and he went out and he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers or sisters from your heart. Oh man, this is a powerful story. See, I don't think very many people list this story as one of their favorite stories in the Bible because it, it has a pretty dark ending. But Jesus' point is one that should fill us up and energize us and get us excited because it first paints a picture of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. You see, the man in the story, he's created a mess for himself. 
You see, it tells us that um, 10,000 was the number of talents that he owed. But what you've got to understand is that 10,000 was the largest number that the Romans had in their vocabulary. That seems far-fetched to me. I looked it up three times to make sure I was reading that right. 10,000 was the largest number in the Roman vocabulary. And a talent was the largest unit of monetary measurement available. So what Jesus is saying is that this guy in the story, he literally owes as much as the first century mind could possibly comprehend. In modern currency, the best thing I can come up with is he owed a million bajillion dollars. Jesus is obviously exaggerating, but he's exaggerating to make a point. This man is hopeless. I mean, he can't repair what's been broken. Even if he and his whole family get sold into slavery, it's still not even going to touch on the amount of money that he owes. He has acquired a debt, and he is hopelessly at the mercy of the king. He begs the king for mercy. The king hears his plea, and the king decides to do something about it. You see, rather than giving him more time to tackle the debt, the king takes pity on him and he chooses instead to completely and entirely wipe the slate clean. He restores the man completely and he leaves him free and clear. Let me tell you something, this is absurd. This doesn't make any sense. This wouldn't really happen in the world. Nobody in their right mind would do what this king did. And that's exactly the point. You see, Jesus tells this story not to call kings to repentance, not to call kings to mercy. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to illustrate the power and absurdity of the gospel, of the good news of what Jesus has done for you and for me. You see, he says, our actions have acquired a debt. We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's plan. We've chosen, you and I both, we're in the same camp. We've chosen selfishness. We've chosen greed. We've chosen idolatry. We've chosen to worship created things instead of the creator. We've sought to become gods instead of living for God. And just like the man in this story, those choices have acquired a debt. And that debt is so outrageously high that we have no hope of ever making things right. We are completely and entirely at the mercy of our king. But what this story teaches us, this is good news. He says, your king takes pity on you and he restores you. He wipes the slate clean. He lets you go free and clear in good standing. Here's the first thing I want you to take away from this story. It's simply this, the gospel restores us. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has restored us. It's absurd, it doesn't make any sense, but he has wiped the slate clean. Our status is no longer defined by our debt, but by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Listen, my son's birthday was this past week. And we celebrated yesterday with a big birthday party. Is it a surprise to anybody that his birthday was this past week? Anybody? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. It was a surprise to the insurance company that it was his birthday this past week. They had his date wrong on all of their paperwork. That created a little bit of a problem for me. You see, we went to the doctor with him because he had something going on. And, and they told us, they said, Do you, are you going to pay all this money that you owe us? I didn't know that we owed him any money. 
They gave us a long list of things that we owed because apparently for the past year, year and a half, his date has been wrong on the insurance. And so anytime they filed for insurance coverage, they've denied the claim and never told us anything about it. All of a sudden, we were in a real mess. We owed a lot of money. But all it took was one small change in the system, correcting his birth date to the right date. And all of a sudden, every claim was resubmitted and our outstanding balance was transferred and we were now in good standings with the doctor again. You see, our debt, it was taken away by the representation of our insurance. Listen, in the same way, when we trust Jesus, the weight of our sin, all that weight that's on our shoulders, it's taken away by the representation of Jesus' death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. Psalm 103.12, it says it in this way. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, I can't claim to have achieved restoration on my own. I didn't do anything to earn forgiveness or grace, but he removed He removed my sins. He removed my transgressions. He took the weight off of my shoulders so that I can be free, restored, and live in good standing with God again. Listen, the King, Jesus Christ, God himself is offering restoration and forgiveness. Only question is, will you accept it? So before I move on to the next point, I wanna pause right here because this isn't just a small point in the message. This is a life-changing truth for somebody. See, we've got a lot of people in the church, not just this church, but in the big C church all around the world that's walking around with spiritual debt on their shoulders because they don't understand that they have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling us a story right here, not so that we would sit back in our seats at church on Sunday morning and feel good, it's so that we would be transformed because we recognize how much he has done for us. Man, I want you to be able to taste and experience what he has done for us because it will absolutely change your life. That's where we're going next in the story. The man in the story, he's happy to accept forgiveness, but as it turns out, he's unwilling to extend forgiveness to anybody else. See, one of his servants owes him 100 denarii. Now, one denarius coin is, is equal to the value of a common day's work from a common labor. Like if you were to go do a job for one day, you would get one denarius coin. He owes, or he owes him 100 denarius coins, 100 denarii. Now, this is a significant amount of money. This equates to probably um, $10,000, maybe $20,000. This is a large sum of money, but it's substantial only when you don't compare it to the massive amounts of money that he's just been forgiven for. You see, the best best way that we can unpack this is that the debt that this man was forgiven for versus the debt that he's owed is probably somewhere in the realm of one million to one, but still he doesn't show mercy. You see, he had the man, he had the servant thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. How do you think he's gonna pay back the debt when he's in prison? It's not gonna be very easy. Essentially what the man in this story does is he chooses vengeance over any opportunity for restitution. The story is not realistic. Jesus knows that. That's why he says the people in the story were outraged when they heard about what this man had done. This isn't right. This isn't normal. This isn't what you can expect to happen. If you're forgiven from that much, there should be a noticeable change in your life. Jesus knew it. The hearers that he was talking to understood it. You and I understand it as well. Here's the second point from the story. The gospel changes us. 
The gospel changes us. Unlike the man in the story, the gospel changes us. It causes us to live differently than the way we were living before. You see, knowing what we have been given makes us different. His love changes us from the inside out. It doesn't twist our arm to produce transformation. It is the natural byproduct of an unmerited, outrageous forgiveness. Anything else just doesn't make sense. See, when I was a kid, I used to love McDonald's, okay? I mean, it's my favorite thing in the world. I don't know how many of y'all can remember this, but there was a McDonald's in the Walmart where they had the golden arches that you would walk under, and then you could come out and sit in Ronald McDonald's statue lap. Like, it was, it was the best thing in the world, my favorite place in the world. I used to beg, can we go to Walmart so that we can go to the McDonald's so that I can sit in Ronald McDonald's lap, okay? It was a whole big experience, like Chuck E. Cheese or Six Flags. It was amazing. I used to want McDonald's all the time. If you had told me when I was a kid that there would come a day where I had the means and the resources to eat McDonald's every single day, I would have thought you were talking about heaven, okay? That would have been the greatest thing in the world. I would have been perfectly happy, perfectly content. But guess what? I don't eat McDonald's every single day. Surprisingly, I've only had McDonald's one time in the past four years that I have lived in this county. I've only eaten at that McDonald's one time. I'm not against McDonald's. I'm sure it's a great place, and many of you love it. But my taste buds have changed because I've experienced greater things. Once you've had steak and once you've had a good burger, all of a sudden McDonald's just doesn't have the same appeal. Let me tell you something. The gospel changes our taste buds. The gospel changes our taste buds. Once we experience the depth of his forgiveness, it radically changes who we are, how we live, and what we do. We're not the same anymore. Everything looks different. You see, our priorities are different. Our vocabulary is different. Our relationships are different, not because they have to be, but because it's the natural byproduct of an encounter with Jesus. Listen, we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about a noticeable change in direction. My daughter got baptized not too long ago, not too many years ago. And I've led people through this process over and over and over again, teenagers and adults and kids, all the same. I work with them and I love on them and I lead them to Jesus. But when it was my daughter, it was different. I was nervous. I was scared. I wanted to make sure I said everything just right. And there was a piece of me that was concerned that maybe, maybe I was leading her too fast through this process and she wasn't really ready for it. And I was scared that maybe, maybe there wasn't really gonna be any noticeable change in her life. And this was just gonna be a small decision that she made that she didn't really understand. You see, I've counseled people that were confused because they made a decision and they didn't understand it. And now they don't know if they need to make the decision again. And I had all of that weighing on my shoulders. But I experienced a lot of relief in the days after her baptism because I noticed that there was a change inside of her that couldn't come from anything I said. She wasn't perfect. But man, there was something about her heart that was different. And I was able to celebrate the fact that God was at work in her life. And because God was at work in her life, there were changes that were noticeable that impacted her life in a powerful way. Let me ask you something. Is the same true of you? Is the same true of me? You see, when the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see change that points them to Jesus? Or do they see the man in this story? Somebody who claims to have received life, but who lives like they have received nothing. Listen, if the gospel hasn't changed you, I wanna challenge you to think about something. Maybe you found religion instead of a relationship with Jesus. Religion doesn't change you, but a relationship with Jesus will change you every single time. Let's move on to the third 
thing. This is the third thing I wanna pull out of this text. And let me tell you, this is a big one. As a matter of fact, this is what we're building everything that we're doing this month off of. It's driving all the initiatives that we're undertaking this month and next month. The king in the story who we now know represents God is angry. Anytime Jesus tells a story in which God is angry, you should really pay attention to that. See, God is angry because he says to the servant, he says, I canceled your debt. Shouldn't you have had mercy on others? You see, the king expected his mercy would change the individual, but it goes deeper than that. He expected that his mercy would change the individual and then flow freely to others and that others would be transformed by a trickle-down effect, started with him and moved on to others all the way down the way. Listen, the gospel restores us, the gospel changes us, and the gospel impacts others through us. You see, the change in us, it doesn't stop with us. We are conduits of God's love, not cul-de-sacs for it. God is the producer of kindness and love, but as recipients of that love, we become carriers of that love. I like the way Lisa Turkhurst, she says this, she's a Christian author. She says it this way, it's easier to give grace when we remember how much we need grace. Lord, as your grace so freely flows to me, may it also be able to flow through me. Listen, our prayer throughout this series is that we would remember grace, but that we'd also be carriers of grace to the world around us. We want this world to be changed. We want them to know that we're for them because Jesus is for them and he has a plan for their life. Listen, a thousand acts of kindness, this is great. And it'll be huge if it's just a corporate thing that we do, but it's not intended to be just a corporate thing that we do and talk about from this stage. It's something that should be done in every corner of this community because we each embrace it as our personal responsibility and our personal mission. We've experienced grace and we're gonna be carriers of grace. A sermon in a sentence is this. We receive God's light so that we can reflect God's light. My prayer, my challenge is that you would find ways to reflect God's light in the world around you today. Listen, at the beginning of the message, I said, we can't start off with the action steps or the go and do's. We've got to start by allowing Christ to work in our lives. We've got to experience the gospel. That's what we want to do right now. See, we're coming up on a time of communion where we just get to sit silently and we get to focus on what Jesus has done for us. And through doing that, it fills us up and it energizes us so that we can go out in the world and be agents of change, agents of him that declares that he loves them. But it all starts with communion. It all starts with a moment where we say, Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for your blood that was spilled on my behalf. Thank you for your body that was broken for me. Thank you for transforming my life. And more we focus on him, the more it fills us up so that we can turn around and focus on others. I'm gonna pray. When I get done, you can make your way to any of these communion stations if you haven't already picked up communion. And at your leisure over the next couple minutes, just take a few moments to pray. Take a few moments to spend with Jesus. Take this communion meal and remember how much God loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. God, you have forgiven us. You have wiped the slate clean. You have restored us. You have brought us back into a place of good standing. 
Heavenly Father, we know how hopeless we were on our own, but over the next few moments, we're gonna feel the weight of that just leave our shoulders as we focus on the cross and what Jesus has done for us. Lord, I pray that over these next few moments as we focus on the cross, that you fill us up, that you bring us to a place where we can experience your love. God, so that we can leave this place not just trying to show kindness out of our own energy, our own efforts, but because we've looked at the cross, we're full so that we can show your love to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.